when you game with Alienware, you have the freedom to be anyone. Whether it's a smooth-sounding narrator or the galaxy's most feared warrior. And the freedom to go anywhere in nearly an instant. So no matter who you choose to be or where you choose to go, Alienware empowers you to defy boundaries and find freedom. Elevate your gameplay with the new Alienware X-Series laptops with 11th Gen Intel Core processors. Defy boundaries and start gaming now at Alienware.com. Welcome to Record Store Society, a production of iHeartRadio. Same thing, you know, most end credit songs I don't really consider a part of the score because, you know, and they always, like, advertise it, like, from the new movie, and then you wait for the whole movie and it's not in there, and then it's, like, the second song during the end credits, and you're like, all right, well, you know, well, it, it, I look- guess that's part of the movie. And let's be clear, we're talking scores, not soundtracks, but I'm, I'm sure True. we're going to be playing around with definitions a lot and lo- lots and lots of wiggle room. But uh, oh, oh, yeah. Hey, hi. Uh, welcome to our record store. I'm Seth. And, and this is where Tara would normally be. But uh, this is Scott, the mailman. He's our mailman, Hey-o. as you can tell by the I name. <laughs> and uh, feel free to look <laughs> it's not around. It's a clever name. And just uh, give us a shout if you need anything. Um, yeah, I mean, the, def- the definition of what is a score and does a score count if it was never released on- as an album? Because there's a lot of great scores that were never released as physical albums, too. So I don't know if, I- if I'm going to be able to count those on my list. There's, 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 there's a lot of ifs around here. Well, and we'll obviously get into this later, but also, is it technically a score if someone has, you know, uh, appropriated a song or a vocal track from a song and put their own score under it, or like it's it, it's a it's a shifty thing. There are a lot of rules. There are a lot of rules. I don't think anybody else subscribes to these rules, but I do. It's it's helpful, at least for me, when I'm narrowing my list to put some rules uh-huh. on it to go. Okay, I'm not going to allow anything. If, for example, there's only if there's more than one artist, like like on the score, it's like no no no. Then it's not a score. You're you're it's a mixtape. You know, it's. <laughs> Something else entirely. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, hey, look, it is Josh Thane. Hello, Josh. Hey, good, hey, Josh. Uh, you, sir, are here on the perfect day. Uh, um, Scott or anyone else in the store who doesn't know, uh, uh, Josh has been working on this really great podcast lately called Camp Hell. And because Josh is already in a really good band, Migrant Worker, uh, he's been scoring his own podcast that he's also been like writing and investigating and hosting and all these things. So first of all, I'm mm-hmm. sure you're very tired, Josh. So <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been a lot. Uh, I have to say too, I've also had uh, a lot of help uh, from my partner, Adrian Barry on this uh, score or soundtrack to it as well. He's kind of my partner in crime for the music in, in uh, it. And it's been a lot of fun making it. Nice. Uh, nice uh, have you worked man. with Adrian in the past? Is Adrian another person you've musically banded with or anything in, uh, before? Kind of. Adrian, um, I work at, I also produce a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of albums for other bands around Atlanta. And I work out of a studio in Marietta called Wonder Dog Sounds. And Adrian was a assistant engineer there for years with us. And mm a great drummer and programmer in electronic type music in his own right. And we started doing this and I was like, Hey man, you know, I can play guitar and all these other string instruments and, and produce an engineer. Let's put our heads together and see what we can figure out. So it's kind of been a collaborative thing and uh, he's definitely been integral to that for sure. Nice. Uh, um, Scott actually has scored many, many things throughout the years as well. Um, oh, cool. Ba- back in the day uh, in particular, um, 
when when I was like fresh out of college, I would make a bunch of like um, uh, animated shorts for basically whoever wanted to pay me because I was uh, I was an art school kid and looking for a way to. Um, make regular money as an art school kid. And one thing people needed, because I was living in Los Angeles, were um, animated pilots. That's what everyone needed, was an animated huh. pilot. So they would come to me and say, do this. And I would go, hey, Scott, will you please do a bunch of silly voices for me? And will you please put music <laughs> behind it as well? And he did. And we made a and living at that yes. for a very long time. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and then and then it actually became our jobs. Yeah. Well, it, separately... Separately, you became a professional animator and I became a professional composer, but we never actually worked, I don't think, in a professional capacity together. We only worked uh, in our, like, salad days. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and now I work in a record store and you're a mailman, so our lives... I know. <laughs> what the hell Life's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 so I, I think we're going to have a lot of good opinions on scores today. Uh, jo mm -hmm, Josh, we're doing the... Um, the, the the high fidelity game top five scores okay yeah and we, we'd love it if you would join us so please stick around sure um I'll, I'll kick this off and and, and I guess we'll kind of like go through our ideas as we go um one thing Scott and I were discussing before you came in the idea of vocals in a score because mm. <sighs> there's definitely soundtracks you know where there's like hey I'm mixing a bunch of different tracks by a bunch of different artists that were in a film and that's great and that's great but that's not a score. I'm for for my list. I wanted to limit it to a couple things. One, I was only going to allow soundtracks where every song was credited to a single artist. So it's like this is the score by blank. And I also for compositionally speaking. Yes, exactly. Right. I also did not really want to include vocals, but I found myself breaking that rule a couple of times. Mm. So I'm 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 already bending my rules, and of course I'm not I'm not expecting either of you to adhere to these rules. This is just my own way of narrowing the list. Oh, don't worry, man. I have my own rules. Exactly, because <laughs> you got to draw the line somewhere. There's so sure. many well, scores. That's the thing. Yeah, it, this I think out of all the top fives I've ever done, mm -hmm. either privately or publicly, <laughs> this was the hardest one. I mean, I've been agonizing over this for like a week because I just it, there are so. I mean, I could have a top fifty, right? They really, really are. easily. There's so many. Because, you know, those first three spots, I don't know about you guys, but those first three spots were really easy for me to fill. And that's when I had to start imposing rules. And, you know, not to, to bury the lead or anything, but for me, it was, can the soundtrack or the score, in this case, stand on its own apart from the movie? Mm -hmm. And if it can, then I didn't allow it. Oh, didn't Ooh, allow because it. It, it, has to be, it has to be tied with the movie. Like, you know, because there's some really great scores out there. Where I'm like, if I never saw this movie, I'd still buy this record because it's just a really good piece of music or really good, you know, a uh, 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 soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, nah, nah, that's 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 just a good mm -hmm. album. Gotcha. I'm looking at good scores, so it has to tie to it. Uh, and the other one for me too was um, if they were vocals, the vocals had to be tied. Like the vocals had to be in the sheet music, and if they weren't, right. then you know. So that and also same thing, no needle drops because that's. I just had to whittle it down because yeah. if I didn't, this I would not be able to do this. Right, right. Uh, yeah. What about you, Josh? Like, did you have any rules? Yeah, I think you know definitely. Like as we said, where's the line for soundtrack and score? And I think what you said is was like a big factor in you know this score is forever tied to this movie or imagery or whatever it is. But also, I kind of broke that rule too, and I think you'll see some of them <laughs> have less to do with uh, the piece of work they're attached to rather than just the uh, piece of work as, as an album itself too. Totally. 
One more yeah. rule I made for myself was mm-hmm. uh, I was only going to let artists be on my list once. There are certain artists Same. where they've written so many good scores. Yeah. I could have done top five by one specific person, which we'll get to. Yeah. So mm-hmm. one well, per. <laughs> I also another rule. This <laughs> is the rules segment. I um, it had to be a complete good score. Mm, so no again, filler. like I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want again. I don't want to give anything away. But there are a lot of really good composers that are wonderful at writing themes. Really, really great melodic, memorable themes. But the rest of the score, you know, it's it's kind of filler or it's not filler. I'll give just one case because I don't want to, you know, uh, usurp anybody's choices. But for me, John Williams. John Williams is probably one of the best thematic writers uh, or composers ever, ever, ever. You know, you hear that the Raiders theme or you hear the Imperial March or you hear like the the the, the flying theme from E.T. and you go, my God, that's amazing. I want to watch that movie. But if you listen to the score, you go for those themes and the rest, you're just like, eh. and now keep in mind, that would be the best that other composers could do, and that right. just happens to be John Williams' filler, but because he was such a strong melodic theme composer, the rest of his stuff kind of pales in comparison, so it's mm. kind of uneven. So, And it's, I, uh, it obviously has to be intentional true. on his part, too. I mean, you can't... Yeah. If you're making a cake, it can't all be frosting. There's got to be some cake in right. there. You true. Know? Yeah, but the problem is his frosting is so good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just want to eat so, it with a spoon. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's get started. My, uh, my number five is from 1990. It is the soundtrack from Twin Peaks by Angelo Badalamenti. So, I mean, this one, I I, I am cheating a bit because there are vocals. So TV? Hey, it's a score, isn't it? You tell me. Oh. I, I, <laughs> I, with, I stuck with that rule too. I, I say TV counts as a score. Oh crap! <laughs> Throw a monkey in the room. Right, you guys talk about yourselves after you think some things. So, I mean, I mean, so I already broke one of my sco- one of my one of my rules because there are three tracks that use uh, vocals on there, but the, but they're so well implemented and it 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 it's so and they're part of the show too. Like exactly. when Julie Cruz is at the 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 club, like she's singing that song and the characters are there. Right. So it's not like it played over the credits. And sometimes the theme song is an instrumental version. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. got the mm-hmm. The vocals on it, so so I felt it was okay. But, but anyway, I, I had to pick this one just because of I mean, come on, like yeah. Twin Peaks as an entity is a wonderful. Oh, which one's that one? Oh, there you go, right yes. there. there you go. Yes. This is this is one I I had to put away on my list, but hard hard uh, not including it. But I had to pull it out because I knew yeah. we'd talk about it anyways. Oh, for sure. But but I mean, like it's a perfect fit. I mean, it is a hand in glove. It um the 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 vibe of the show Twin Peaks is so perfectly tuned and so wonderful. And the fact that Angelo Badalamenti's score just kind of like matches it and kind of intertwines with it, but it's also works kind of like an oil and water thing too, where it's mm-hmm. almost like it stands apart from it and like kind of floats on the surface as if it doesn't match, but then it matches so well in its non-matchingness. It's it's a real special score, you know? It's amazing too. Like it's, uh, you know, in my opinion, there are two artists that have successfully captured the sound of the Pacific Northwest. One is Angelo Badalamenti. The other is Phil Elverum. Right. Like, 
they just even without the imagery, you it just sounds like this place, this place where we're very far from. Right. Uh, the uh, the Pacific Northwest. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's I don't know. I think that's one of those like you said, Seth. It, like oil and water. You hear it the first time, and already David Lynch having a sitcom is already so odd. <laughs> first. And then you hear that intro music and it's just like so different than what you would expect other than a daytime soap opera or something right. which he was playing off of clearly. Uh, but as you get into the Twin Peaks lore and loving it as most people do, you know, it's, it's inseparable and you just love it. Did you, have you guys seen that video of the composer describing uh, working with David Lynch when yeah. David is describing to him uh, Laura's, Laura Palmer's theme right and mm -hmm. have, have you seen this it's amazing it's one of the coolest uh composer videos i think i've seen it and lynch is just pushing him on and describing what he wants to see where they're coming out of the woods and he's playing it as he, he's describing and you can just see exactly that scene playing out it's really amazing well i've also yeah. heard that lynch wrote the majority of the lyrics for these songs too which which makes a lot of sense to me as well oh, i didn't know that hmm. so um so yeah uh, that that's my number five and uh, in particular if uh, if anyone out there in the record store is looking for kind of like a a newer take on this uh shoo shoo plays the music of twin peaks is a real nice update it's um it's a bit more coherent and a bit more of an actual like solid album album because it's all made by one band and it's all made like to be listened to as an album it's not scoring anything it's an album and so it's a it's a very fun listen and if, if you like either shushu or twin peaks which i like both so it's it's a win-win nice. uh my number four here we go the year is 2012 le voyage dans la lune by air Good choice, man. Ooh. So this was the 2011 restoration of that Georges Millier, A Trip to the Moon film. The one that like, I, I think at least for me when I was a kid, it was most famous for me for being the thing that the Smashing Pumpkins video Tonight Tonight was based on. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. That's how I knew it. And um, yeah, yeah, years later, they came across this um, really beautiful print of it. And I'm, I'm never quite sure because this is a, a color print. And I know back then there were these things they would do where they would hand paint the actual film cells and actually like play it through. And it, it it replicated the idea of color film, but it was obviously just black and white. I believe there was something to do with that, with this restoration. It was like a rare find for them. I'd have to look at the details. Hmm. But the point is, it's a silent film. So the band Air re-scored it. Wow. And, um it's absolutely wonderful. It's um, it's it's absolutely how 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 could you go wrong? Air is a wonderful band. The visuals are fantastic. It's the cleanest and the clearest you've ever seen this film. It it, it was. I've got to check that out. I was not aware of that till now. It's good. I loved the air. Another great score. I totally forgot about the Virgin Suicides. Yes, yes. originally. That was, I had which, to kick that off the list. It didn't make ooh. it, but that was a tough one. I found a vinyl copy of that some years ago. It's a, that's a tough one to track down, and it yeah. sounds incredible. So good. I mean, Playground that's, Love alone, oh, they, they can have all my money for mm, the rest of my life just seriously. for writing Playground Love. That's all. You know, and talk I, about atmosphere. Oof. I saw 
uh, Phoenix play when Criminal Records was doing all those afternoon shows for mm -hmm. a minute when I was flirting with Twitter. And uh, <laughs> you would follow them and be, oh, Phoenix is going to be down there. Go down and, you know, they're playing uh, Playground Love right there about 2.30 in the afternoon at Criminal Records in the corner. Wow. Awesome. That's awesome. That's really super cool. cool. That's very cool. So yeah, I, I guess Air has done multiple scores and uh, they're all pretty great. Um, they should do more. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'd be into it. I'd be very into it. I miss that fact of, of bands doing scores. Uh, Me too. I don't think they do it enough. I've always thought, what if uh, Medeski Martin and Wood, for one, did like an Ocean's Eleven or something, like just yeah, let them do that right. or something, you know? Um, I think it could work because a lot of my favorite, a lot of my favorite musicians who do scores are also in bands, but mm -hmm. we'll get to mm -hmm. those in a moment. <laughs> uh, my next one is not in a band. Um, they are just a, just absolutely one of my favorite musicians though. Uh, number three, the year is 1972. It's a clockwork orange by Wendy Carlos. I mean, Moog City, she fucking killed yeah. it right on that Moog, yeah. you know? I mean, she did. like, uh, th there are so many moments in this that are so memorable. My, my, my personal favorite, um, the song is March from a Clockwork Orange. It's a track mm -hmm. two on the album. It's the scene in the movie where um, you can see, his name is Alex, right? That's his, that's yeah. the character's name? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can see Alex walking through the record store and like the, the steady cam shot. Yes. And, and yeah. you know, he's, he's, he's uh, looking at all the records and like that song that's playing right there. Um, um, that piece from Beethoven's ninth March from a clockwork orange. And it's got mm -hmm. that, like yeah. that voice that, that Moog vocoded voice in the background. And, mm -hmm. Oh, it's just, it's just such a treat. And, um, yeah. I mean, I love all Wendy Carlos and actually I like pretty much all Moog. Like um, uh, a, a big thing, Josh, that uh, Scott and I love that we talk about often is the the music from um, the Main Street Electrical Parade from Disneyland. <laughs> have you ever Fuck heard that yes. before? Oh no, no. Oh, I don't dude. think I have. Main it's, Street Electrical Parade. From give yourself a treat. Yes, Disneyland. It, Disneyland okay. in the 1970s. There's a long history of them trying to get this parade going and what it would be and blah, blah, blah. And just because it was the 1970s and they needed like a hot new instrument, <laughs> they used the Moog to score this entire parade. And the parade is, of course, long since dead and they've replaced no, it. It's still times. there. Oh, did it come back? Yeah. It's at Disney World right now. At Disney, well, Disney, I don't Disneyland. know about Disney World, but I've Disneyland. Seen Disney World when I Google, but. Yeah, in Disneyland, they, they brought back the Main Street Electrical Parade. I don't know after COVID if they've reopened if they brought right. it back, but um, hmm. the last time I was there, they had it with all the original floats with like Pete's Dragon and all that stuff and the original soundtrack. It's pretty cool. But, but, the, but the Moog soundtrack to that parade is a real treat. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And uh, I, I guess yeah. all Moog, all, all Wendy Carlos, yeah. well, uh, I guess I can't you say all You got the switched Moog. on box stuff, which yes. is oh, yeah. similar with that, you know. And it's 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 fantastic. I mean, um, and that's actually another reason to point out how great Wendy Carlos is, is that, because yeah. Um, yeah, when I was saying all Moog is great, there's some bad Moog out there. <laughs> like, um, for example, sure. one of the first uses of Moog on a commercially released album was actually uh, Mickey Dolenz from the Monkees. He owned one of the first hmm. Moogs and he like snuck it onto one of the albums. You can barely tell. Like, it's just, right. He, right. he made a couple of squeals, threw it in the background and that right. was it. Like, 
then you, whenever you, I, there's actually quite a bit of archival footage of actually watching Wendy Carlos, like, you know, plug the mm-hmm. plugs, turn the screws, talk mm. about it, go through all the details. Um, there's a really wonderful box set, which is like the complete, like switched on era of Wendy Carlos, including the, um, well-tempered synthesizer cavalier fuck i can't remember well-tempered clav clavier or whatever was the original one i think yeah she did that yeah but but all of them it's it's got basically Uh all of her classical um moog pieces all in one giant box set and there's all these like outtakes where she talks about like all of the mistakes and like shows like hey here's me trying it this way and you can see why it doesn't work Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. you'll hear that version and it's it's there's some cool stuff in there but, um, She's got some great ones. Oh, for sure. And, and, and well, and also, like as you were saying with Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. with the the Clockwork Orange soundtrack, it's kind of another like oil and water situation, but in a different way, because I feel like Alex would be such a purist when it came to Beethoven. The fact that Wendy Carlos was plug, you know, basically sending Beethoven through this Moog synthesizer, you know, it's just it's it's not probably what he would like, and yet it still matches the character perfectly. Because he is sort of, you know, Beethoven, but two clicks left of center. True. But it's, but it's also kind of futury, which is what the, was yeah. what the movie is. But it's also right. kind of... See, now, from our perspective, we are people who, you know, were born after that movie was released. So it was seen as vintage futurism. You know what I mean? Right. And just like the Moog. The Moog always felt like the past and the future simultaneously to me, a person born in the 80s. So... Hmm. Um, yeah, way to go, Wendy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this brings me up to my number two. Um, this one is actually going to be kind of similar to my number four, where it is a rescoring of something. Number two, 1999, Dracula by Philip Glass. <laughs> So good. By the way, that that was my number six. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, so, so the original. Are you, are, are you going the piano? Bram Stoker's Dracula soundtrack? No, this is the Todd the Browning. The, the oh, original okay. Todd Browning, nineteen thirty-one Dracula. Oh, nineteen thirty-one. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so, so, so let me ask you a question, Seth. Yes. Are you are you doing solo piano Dracula, Philip Glass, or Kronos Quartet? Kronos Quartet, the version that was in the film. Although the solo right. piano version is very good. Um, If anyone in the store doesn't know kind of how this went down, because it was an odd situation. The original 1931 Dracula was like barely not a silent film. (laughs) Like they had like just moments before realized they could do talkies and we're like, oh, okay, I guess this this would be one of them. All right, let's do this. And so the whole idea of like diegetic music versus like non-diegetic music hadn't really been like figured out yet. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a thing yet. This is a brand new medium, you know? So, uh, oh, if anyone in the record store doesn't know, uh, diegetic music is the kind of music that you actually see on screen playing. So if in the scene, someone's riding around in a car and you hear the radio playing and that's kind of the soundtrack to the scene, but because it's coming out of the radio, that's called diegetic. So non-diegetic means like traditional scoring, traditional soundtracking, where it's just kind of happening and there's you you can't see the source. So anyway, th- th- this concept was brand new to talkies back then because it's a brand new medium. How could it not be brand new? You know? So, mm-hmm. uh, in the original version, they had to like make excuses why music was playing. So they used a lot of Swan Lake and often mm-hmm. th- there would be like a performance piece in the background. There would be like, they would be at an opera and like that, that would be scoring the scene and weird stuff like that, you know? 
Um, and it's also just a pretty damn silent film. There are huge stretches of that movie that are just kind of quiet. No one's talking, no music, because it's 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 new. You know, no one knew what yeah, to do. Yeah, it, it was an odd combo to see, you know, a, a Transylvanian castle set to the music of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake with armadillos in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the armadillos are amazing. And <laughs> You're like, all right. Yeah. Okay, like, do, 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 all right. <laughs> so, so I guess that's that's a take. <laughs> so for some Pennsylvania an- armadillos, oh the worst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, Universal, at some point, uh, I guess it would have been around 1999, reached out to Philip Glass and was like, "Hey, could you make a new score for this film for us, please? Because this old one, I don't know, we're having a hard time marketing Swan Lake to the kids, <laughs> you know." <laughs> And uh, so Philip Glass made this brand new score, which is very Philip Glass. It's got all of his arpeggios, all of his repetition, all the standard Philip Glass hits, you know? And um, because of that, it's actually got kind of a mixed reception amongst people. I think if you're a Philip Glass fan, you're like, oh, fantastic. Pour, Pour more Philip Glass all over me. Like, this is all I want. But if you aren't already indoctrinated into his style, people are like, whoa, it's too busy. Whoa, it's too repetitive. Whoa, it's just, it's like, yeah, that's him. You know, like. A similar thing happened with, um, they had Rick Wakeman score uh, the Lon Chaney version of Phantom of the Opera, mm. which was completely silent. Right, right, right. And a lot of people got up in arms about that where they're just like, dude, why Rick Wakeman? Like, you know, Yes is a fine prog rock band, but this this is so busy and so over the top that they, uh, they I think, pulled that from from shelves. Hmm. So, because people got so upset about it, like purists. And this was wow. back in like 88 or 89, I think. Wow. Um, but uh, yeah, it was like, people were like, no, 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 no. Like, we'll just take an old like Wurlitzer like piping along, thank you. Interesting. <laughs> I, I've seen yeah. a couple versions of this and I always enjoy it. Um, I saw footage once of... Uh, Riza rescoring some old silent Disney animated shorts. That's cool. And um, wow. man, oh man, I'm so disappointed I missed this. Um, I had tickets. I was raring to go right before COVID kicked in last year. I was on my way to uh, the Big Ears Music Festival up in uh, Tennessee, mm. and uh, Kim Gordon was going to be rescoring some Andy Warhol films live. Oh, oh wow. <sighs> I wanted to see that so badly, but, uh, but no, but no, COVID happened. So the festival was canceled. So that's, that's one of those unique ones where it's like, are you ever going to get a reschedule of that? Yeah. Like maybe, that, right. that maybe specifically, not. like maybe I'll see Kim Gordon play. Like, in fact, um, they announced recently the, um, the, uh, Pitchfork Festival for this year's lineup and Kim Gordon is pl- uh, headlining. It's a good lineup this year. Fiery Furnaces <laughs> are back, which I'm really excited about. Yeah. yeah. Should be good. But, um, yeah. but anyway, but, but it's, but no, Josh, like you're right. Like that's one of those things where like a year and a half later, like, okay, Kim Gordon, you want to score these Andy Warhol things? She's like, no, I, that was just a, like a, I just, I wanted right. to do that a year and a half ago. Like, I don't want to do that now. <laughs> one moment in time. Yep. Yeah. All right. And that brings me to my number one, um, the year's 2007, the film and the name of the soundtrack is There Will Be Blood. It's by Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. Yeah. Just panderecki as hell. Just so good. (laughs) (laughs) Totally forgot about that one. I mean, Johnny Greenwood to me, um, he's, uh, he's, he's, I think he's my favorite contemporary scorer. Like, I mean, I think I could do top five of just Johnny Greenwood if I wanted to. I, yeah. <laughs> he's he, just so great. Yeah. He, 
there's such a like there's such an interesting way that is so his own uh, in dealing with stringed instruments. They, you know, he really, really, really records them dry. Um, so you hear, I mean, everything, everything on that stringed instrument. And, you know, I know a lot of people when the uh, There Will Be Blood soundtrack came out, there were, you know, mostly there were people celebrating it, but there were a few detractors being like, learn how to record strings, man. It's like, <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> He's recording them this way. And what was so cool is you started to see that leak into Radiohead work. Right. Um, oh, yeah. You know, you'd hear like the Colenio strings and stuff like that. It's pretty amazing. Like, I remember when like Burn the Witch first came out, that first single. And oh, you're like, ah, yeah. oh, Johnny took control of that one. There it <laughs> you is. Know, yeah. Like, yeah. And then he he was doing all the BBC stuff for a while. Yeah. Or maybe like oh, Popcorn Superhead Receiver. And, and I, you know, I just haven't experienced a lot of that. I heard he was doing it. And I'm sure it's amazing because I just haven't been watching a lot of BBC stuff. So I'm curious what a lot of that's like. And now he's got his new record label too. Yes. Doing like just the, the classical really stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Really? It's, huh. it's amazing. Oh, that. dude. Yeah, like he put out like a single of, it's an A-side, B-side of his stuff. And it's, again, like you listen to, you're like, God, this guy can do no wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's amazing. No, he, yeah, he's Yeah, it's pretty best. cool to see him develop into the composer, you know, classical instrumentation role. And it's funny yeah. too, because he he um, wasn't really wanting to do it. Um, uh, he had done one short uh, experimental film called Body Song, which is very, very good. The uh, score to it is really fantastic. And that was, that was uh, Johnny's first, like, uh, uh, like kind of step out into like the uh, solo world. Paul Thomas Anderson saw that and went, oh man, I need this guy. Can you come score my film? And Johnny was like, no, I can't score your film. Like, I'm just some guy, not a chance. And so um, he forced him to basically, like just just, just coercion and, and buttering him up and all this and talking about how much he loved body song. And oh, it's just the same. It's just the same. Don't worry, don't worry. And um, one of the big problems I read about was that um, because it was a period piece, he had this kind of like weird, push pull in his mind of like should it be period music since it's a period piece of a film and the way he kind of settled on it was like i'm going to use period instruments like i'm using an orchestra they just won't be played in a traditional period fashion you know and that's kind of how he walked that line and balanced it and uh i just love it i love to listen to it i, I do think it was probably like the biggest step out from radiohead that johnny ever got because body song mm -hmm. is still pretty radioheadish so this was the one where he took a giant step out and went, no, this is a Johnny Greenwood score. This is what Johnny Greenwood sounds like. And uh, yeah, well, I remember number one. I think, you know, we were living in Bellingham at the time when they, they released, I think, the first two tracks, which is like Open Spaces and Future Markets. And, you know, at first we were like listening to it, we're like, is this going to be a horror movie? Because he kind of scored it as a horror movie, which the movie's not. But it's what's made it so it heightened the movie to that that part so much. Like if you listen to that score on its own, so much of it is so unsettling, which is sort of the Penderecki aspect that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And eventually, he went on to work with Penderecki, didn't he? Like didn't they, they he put do... out an album hmm. that featured music from both of them. But that's kind of all I remember. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Man, amazing stuff. Well, that's about it for me. That's my top five. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I need to give that one another five, watch. <laughs> Uh, so, so there we go. I'm going to wrap up my list there, but uh, I'm going to put my records away. Josh, it's going to be your turn. So walk around the store, gather up your records, and uh, and we'll do this again in just a moment. Here we go. Sounds good. Want to hear something amazing? 
Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. All right, we are back. We're here. We've got Scott the Mailman. We've got Josh hey. Thane. And hello, hello. we are doing top five scores. Josh, hit us with your number five. All right, number five. Uh, have to admit, full disclosure, these are my top five favorite scores. Hard to say top five of all time, but that personally struck a chord with me. Sure. And probably have helped influence me and... Uh, my very short-lived scoring career uh, <laughs> with the new Camp Hell podcast. Uh, my number five is Dead Man, Neil Young. Fuck uh, yes, yes, dude. Okay, great. I'm so glad that got <laughs> represented because I had to take that off my list. Yeah. And I'm so happy that got represented. Well it's done, a, man. It's a weird one, you know, and I've got it at number five. It's if you don't know, just Neil Young doing his Neil Young thing just by himself. Mostly his guitar rig. Uh, I think there's some pump organ in there. And some voice over is kind of scattered through the actual uh, recorded score uh, with some pieces of the movie. You've got Iggy Pop talking some. You've got the yeah. Indian Nobody from the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really a fan of that, too. That kind of just gives you a callback to the movie. Like, you can kind of just listen to this whole piece as itself and kind of get a feel for what was going on with this kind of dreamlike Western thing that Dead Man is, you know? Oh, yeah. I remember they did a similar thing on the Natural Born Killers soundtrack when they had um, Cowboy Junkies doing Sweet Jane. They added a little bit of dialogue of Woody Harrelson and um, Juliette Lewis. And it just, you're right. Like it just kind of, it just drops you right back in that moment. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's kind of does what a soundtrack should do. Yeah. Yeah. I gave it another listen driving around yesterday and it was just like, oh man, this is so cool. And and I have to admit, uh, full disclosure too, I recently was gifted a guitar amp and it's very similar to Neil Young's famous, uh, Fender Tweed Deluxe that he, he talks about. And it's this iconic, amp and i was gifted a fender brownface deluxe which is like the next era right after that but yeah. it's got that same kind of feedback just trying to control this wild beast amp that is very particular <laughs> but that is in full display on on that uh album too so i've been just really wrapping my head around neil's whole guitar deal and uh it's a great example of it right there most definitely there's there's always a line from that movie that always makes me laugh and it's without a doubt every time. Uh, it's when Billy Bob Thornton's sitting there and he's talking about his hair and he's like, how do you get your hair? So like, my, this is just like old barn hay. You it's can't like go a damn barn thing hay, with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he's like, how do you do that? Talking to yeah. Charlie Depp. Uh, it's just lucky, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I also love oh, yeah. uh, Crispin Glover in that. What, was oh that yeah, like they're shooting buffalo. Or something, <laughs> yeah. Such an odd movie, you know what I mean? I well, think I think it was... Wasn't it like, um, uh, oh shit, I, now I'm, I'm losing his name. He was in like uh, The Night of the Hunter, uh, Robert, um, 
Oh, I mean, no, I'm forgetting his name. Oh, well. Who is yeah, he? Yeah, I think it was his last movie. <laughs> oh, okay. The actor? Or yeah. Jim Jarmusch, you're talking about? Uh, no, 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 no. Was, uh, 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 the actor who played, like, the dude at the beginning who, like, shot the guy. Oh, uh, I know I know the actor you're talking about. He was I in, don't like, Night of the name. Hunter. Yeah. He was in, like, I, I think Out of the Past. Oh, this is hmm. going to kill me. Robert Mitchum. Yes. Okay. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> I, 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 you said I Robert. Light bulb go off. And so. I went with a, with an old Robert name, and Mitchum was the one. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, and I like the movie, but I'll be honest. Like I'll listen to that guitar work more than I'll probably watch the movie too. Yeah. And I, I think that sometimes it it can go both ways like that. For know? sure. Good pick. Um, Good pick. Cool. So yeah, that's man. my number five. Uh, number four, I have to check my order because I feel like I've switched these around a few times. Like, <laughs> of course. Know, that, that should go there. Okay, so number four is something a little more modern. I, again, broke the rule and went into a TV show. Uh, Watchmen, the Watchmen score. Trent oh, Reznor yeah. and Atticus oh. Ross. Which is, this is volume one. They actually put out three volumes, I think, of it. And um, I thought it was just wonderful. I, I love the series of that. I mean, Trent Reznor has done a few scores, uh, The Social Network. He did this most recently, Soul, which won all kinds of awards. With John Batiste, yeah. John Batiste, too. You can't uh, neglect to mention him in that at all because the jazz stuff. But I think this also, with seeing the success of Soul, it almost seems like this was kind of for me, seemed the biggest break in Trent Reznor being just Trent Reznor. You know, there's a lot of this I agree. Like ragtime piano and that you start to see pieces of jazz and other aspects you don't normally expect from him that worked and weaved their way through that show. Uh, I really think that, I thought. yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think as time goes on, you know, he won, I think him and Atticus Ross won the Oscar for Social Network and now they won an Oscar again with yep. John Batiste for Soul. But I think... Um, you know, the show Watchmen was so wonderful, but I think people are still kind of, I, I maybe like another 10 years, people will realize what an achievement that soundtrack was. Because mm-hmm. it is stunning, man. And I didn't even think of that. Well done. And I have to say, too, if you have not found a copy of this vinyl and checked it out, they were really cool in how they did it. Each one is like... Like, I think volume one is like, this was actually like a band, like they created a fake band for it. And the other oh, ones wow. have like newspaper clippings from the time, like each volume has its own theme to the vinyl itself, which was really neat with the packaging. I thought they did with that as That's well. That's super cool. So, yeah. I'm going to check so this the, out. I, I haven't seen the show yet. I have not heard a single note from the soundtrack. So oh, I'm, you're in for a treat, man. I'm yeah. excited. But, but obviously I'm a big, you know, fan of... Nine Inch Nails, and also Trent Reznor's score work. So I'm yeah. sure it is fantastic, though. Yeah, it's neat stuff. And I'll, uh, I'll bet Trent Reznor's going to EGOT, don't you think? I think he has yeah. hit the EGOT. I think with some award that he didn't have that he got with Soul, I think Trent has an EGOT. Really? Because Tony... Now. I'm pretty sure. I have to check that. The, the Tony for me is the one that I would wonder. Like, what? how how is Trent Reznor going to get his Tony, you know? Did he... I'm going to check this right now. Yeah, yeah, I'm go If he hasn't, I mean, like, it's... It's not long before that no. dude does a musical. No, exactly. So, someone, or, or maybe someone will do like, you know. Oh, you're right. The Tony is the one they're missing. But I, I bet, for example, someone's going to like base a musical on Pretty Hate Machine and then he'll get his Tony. <laughs> you know? Are we that far removed from the 90s where Pretty Hate Machine gets a musical now? I oh, yeah. It, yeah. It'll be the Dream Girls of uh, Industrial. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be great. Oh, that's good. That's good. Great. So that's uh, number four. 
Uh, on to my number three. I was torn. I actually could not find my copy of it here, but I do have my copy of A Fistful of Dollars. Mine was actually The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly for number three. Mm. Which I was torn because they're both great. And this is from the Dollars or the Man With No Name trilogy with Clint Eastwood and Ennio Morricone. Fistful of Dollars being the first one, but I think, and I went back and forth between those two, but I think The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is so iconic, and, you know, everybody knows as soon as you hear that harmonica right from the start, and is another one that has a theme throughout that score. Right. When you listen to the whole thing, it's constantly coming back to it, and he Mm -hmm. did it in such a cool way. I was reading up about Ennio Morricone a little bit more last night, and I think it's very cool, the aspect of what you can do with what little you have at the time uh, from spaghetti Westerns themselves being, you know, going to Italy to go film this stuff on the cheap to RCA records, not really giving him the budget to do a full orchestra like he wanted. So using hand claps and whistles and whips and pistols and things of that nature and the fairly new Fender electric guitar at the Mm -hmm. time, you know, in this style, which they really did as, as almost a cost budget thing at the time that just gave this really cool piece of artwork that, uh, you know, is used and, and, uh, you know, hat tip to constantly now. It's definitely, um, that thing. I I have to keep reminding myself of this word because it's nowhere near my lexicon yet. Um, it's very echoic, not iconic, but Mm. echoic. Echoic. Echoic means, so, so, so if, you know, like, if you say like the Pepsi logo is iconic, that's because mm-hmm. you're seeing it. If you're hearing it and it, uh-huh. it hears, if it hears iconic, <laughs> then that is called okay. echoic. Nice. And um, it's, it's an interesting word. And um, I have to remind myself to use it because it's, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's a weird word. But, 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 but anyway, but the point is, is that that whole spaghetti Western era and specifically these songs are so echoic. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's, I, I, there are those songs kind of like, um, think about like the, the, the Jaws theme, you know, sure. it's been parodied so many times that it's mm-hmm. almost become its own trope and it's, right. it's amazing. You know, I mean, it's like, easy to forget how great it is even just because you, you write it off. Oh yeah. We've heard that thing, you know, right. but if you really right. listen to it, start to bottom, it's still amazing every time. And also, I don't know if you ever checked out that Rome album that uh, Danger Mouse did. Yes, where he went and yes. dug up all a lot of the players from any Morricone's bands from back then, and there was some really cool stuff on that one as there, well. There was. I really enjoyed that. And uh, and also, uh, gosh, I'm I'm trying to think. Um, I want to say he also did the soundtrack for the Hateful Eight. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Do you all remember that? Yeah. So, so it, it's Danger cool. Mouse or any oh, Morricone? Uh, Morricone. That 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 basically yeah, he. That, um, I forgot he, that, but that does sound right. And that he's still at it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, that like mm-hmm. he can still kill it. So so good for him too. You yeah, know. So that's yeah. all, that's pretty great. Good on you, Ennio. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm up to my number two. Uh, this is one I have to admit that is by far one of my favorite albums. I can't even speak to the movie. (laughs) So I broke my rule completely here. This is uh, Miles Davis, a tribute to Jack Johnson. Oh, Oh, wow. This is a score. This is a score. This is like almost like a um, uh, 
Prince Purple Rain situation where you think about it as an album so much you forget that it's associated with something else. This was a movie about the boxer Jack Johnson, one of the first uh, African-American boxers, very controversial figure at the time. But it's it's such a great album. I believe uh, Teo Macero also edited this and uh, produced it as he did with uh, Bitches Brew in, in a Silent Way. And if, if you're not familiar, you know, we'd have these improvisations and just a master at editing this tape together and making an album out of what might have been three hours of improvisations <laughs> of Miles and whatever <laughs> band he had at the time. And same band, too, for the most part. Herbie Hancock, John McLaughlin, um, Chick Corea is on this, although he's not credited, and I've I've checked that, but he is on this one as well. Hmm. And I just love it. It's it's so funky. Out of those three albums, Bitches Brew in a Silent Way and Jack John tribute to Jack Johnson. Um, I read somewhere actually, I think the beginning track is John McLaughlin was just kind of sound checking in the studio and just doing this groove, and Miles just kind of walked in and, and just said, "Okay, this is the first track," um, and I composed it too. So as Miles does. Um, but it's great. It's probably my favorite album of that era of Miles at the time. And uh, it is a score. So I threw it up there. It's a That's sneaky awesome, pick. I, I, I yeah. love it. Because I've, I've never seen that film, but I have heard that album. So that's Same. very much to your point. Yeah. I believe it's on YouTube. And it's it's very, you know, 70s of like this documentary style, like film movie with just mm. some funky jazz uh, <laughs> stuff going on. It's in like the a background. Robert Downey senior movie. Right. Right. Like right. where you're just like, is this a movie? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tribute to Jack Johnson, check it out. If you nice. have excellent nice. pick. I love that. And uh, my number one is by far my favorite score of all time. This is, I don't know if you can put it in like the canon of history, but this one has a close uh, very close to my heart. Uh, this is the Paris, Texas soundtrack. Oh, score. good Excuse choice. Excuse me. It is a score. Uh, Ry Cooter, um, Jim Dickinson, and David Lindley. Three studio wizards, all of them. Um, Ry Cooter is one of my favorite artists. And I, I was thinking about this album too. If you haven't heard, it's very atmospheric. I've read stories about them rolling uh, beer bottles across piano wire and all these weird string instruments and mariachi instruments and, and Ry Cooter's amazing slide work. I'm sure David Lindley's playing some slide stuff on there too. And uh, it's great. Me and my old roommate used to uh, have this on weekly and just vibe out in the house doing whatever, you know, I, I just never get enough of it. And it also plays off on a theme of, um, dark was the night, cold was the ground by blind Willie Johnson, soul blues tune. And it's like, you know, this slide melody he keeps coming back to. And so that's kind of weaved in throughout it. And it's also got some really cool VO scenes from the movie, as we discussed before also, um, yeah, and Jim Dickinson, uh, producer of fame from Sticky Fingers, Rolling Stones, and um, out of Memphis, and David Lindley's amazing string work as well. Wow. Who I got to meet one time, actually, at uh, Red Light Cafe in Atlanta. He came and played, and uh, talking with him, I said, man, I really love the Paris, Texas score, and he said, don't ever get high and listen to it. <laughs> and I said, I would never think of such a thing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, only th- the only thing he had to say was Harry Dean Stanton. He said, we met him and he was like, man, that guy, 
never leaves character, complete <laughs> method actor. I didn't know that. Me either. Harry Dean Stan always seemed like one of those guys where I'd be so scared to talk to him. Right. He, he seemed to have that vibe himself a little bit about it. He was like, this is an intense guy. I, I feel yeah. like he would like he said to say about it. It's like guys like him and like Rip Torn. Like yeah. I'm just like I'm too scared to talk to you. You're like you're too you have just there's your 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 reputation precedes you. Oh, look at this. I didn't even realize this is actually signed by David Lindley. For, oh wow. Oh wow. That's cool. But um yeah, Paris, Texas. I love it. It's a great throw it on on a Sunday afternoon and just take it in. One more one more note about Paris, Texas I wanted to throw out a thought about which I use, and this comes back to uh, me scoring the podcast too, because I play slide guitar and I like that swampy kind of feel on it. And I'm always worried, like people are gonna be like, "Oh man, this is too Breaking Bad." It was a great score, <laughs> oh, right? Right. But yeah. I have to say, thinking about it, I feel like whoever did that definitely heard this score. Right. It's, there's a lot yeah. of similarity if you think about that, and Paris, Texas, kind of used that to an extreme, like years before that. So. Anyways, just wanted to make that comparison a little bit. Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let, let's let, now let's talk about you scoring your show, Camp sure. Hell. And um, well, for first here, let's let's play a little bit. I'm going to play just a little chunk of the uh, the theme song, the, the yeah. like the main theme. So here we go with that. So uh, what's your order here? Now, are, are you working from the audio first and then kind of seeing what emotions that brings up in you? Did you kind of have mm-hmm. a melody that you kind of already liked and you knew would fit really well? What, what was the order? What was the hand? What was the glove? Um, well, we started working on this podcast just to bring everybody up to speed. Uh, um Bring you guys up to speed. <laughs> Every, anyone who's in the record store listening in. <laughs> All the people, speeds. Anybody. Um, it, it's a, Camp Hell is about this wilderness therapy camp that was in Georgia and other places. A lot of abuse going on to, to the boys and girls that attended. A lot of money, a lot of politics. A really dark story. So it was, you know, we're in the woods. Um, you know, we, it's, it's dark. We want to hit, hit some different feels throughout the telling of this story. You know, there's some, some kind of bittersweet justice in there. There, there's a lot of heartbreaking stuff, a lot of dark, scary things too. So with that in mind, it it was kind of, I thought, you know, and I, I joke like, oh, we just made this podcast so I could make the score. Actually, like, <laughs> right. and uh, right. so first I, I thought, you know, okay, I can do all the string stuff, but we're going to need more than that. And I could do that, but I, I knew I had a lot of uh, things to do with just creating an actual podcast. So I reached out to my friend, Adrian, who I said, we've worked together in the studio a lot before, and he's a, a wonderful programmer and electronic musician in his own right. So we kind of started collaborating between it. And I think it was just, okay, here's the premise for this. And we just got together and, and I just start playing something at first and um we'd go off that or I, i'd you know start just talking and playing wait stop right there and he, he'd tell me you know stop keep doing that again and that's uh the theme you just played that's our main theme mm-hmm. where we have a lot of noose clips going in and out of it at the beginning of the episodes and so that one was um me just kind of playing that little guitar riff and uh 
he was like, keep doing that. So we'd kind of go back and forth. Sometimes he would, I'd say, you know, we need this vibe of like a newsroom, like a a news reporter and and all that busyness going on. And then he'd send me something and I'd add something on top of it or uh, have some feedback and like, oh, let's kind of change this or drop that. And that was kind of our method. And a lot of that stuff, I, um, I bought a Kent, this old Japanese guitar. It's really funky. It's got like four gold foil pickups and all these knobs and switches on it, but it's it's so bright. It just sounds like a finished record on it. And a lot of that, uh, that got used on a lot of the album too. So wow. I think using instruments and uh, can can just bring a whole different feel out of it and kind of like shift whatever you're playing into a certain direction. And uh, we use that on a lot of it as well. And yeah, it was great. A lot of must, fun. That's awesome, man. It must also have kind of like a double-edged sword of being able to make exactly what you want. Because if, uh, yeah, if, if people don't know, in general, if you are um, scoring, let's say, a podcast or a television show, you usually just have like a music library that you dig through mm-hmm. and you find all the elements and then you just kind of plug and play. You just kind of, you you use right. what's already been made, already been licensed and available to you. And mm-hmm. sometimes that works great. And sometimes it doesn't. It just kind of depends on if you can find the exact right tool for the exact right job. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're crafting your own, it must be amazing because you can get the exact right song, but you have to make it. <laughs> so. Sure. Well, and there was still some back and forth. Like I said, um, one of the things Adrian would bring to me that was a little hard to play against or to place was he was playing with aleatoric compositions and using some of these plugins, which aleatoric is this randomized composition tool that you can have instruments do where it's like, here's a scale and it's kind of just playing notes in a algorithmically random way. Right. Um, kind of like that it, true crime sound, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. it has a very cool sound, but then when you try to play along with that, <laughs> it's a little difficult. You have to, you're kind of actually, you kind of have to force where those chords are are, are pushing you uh, based on those notes and it kind of works or doesn't. So there would be a lot of like, okay, this is cool. I don't know how we can use this or like, how can we tweak this? So, you know, yes, getting exactly what you want, but still, you know, sometimes you have to stretch a little and like, I'm not quite sure how this is going to work but let's keep it in the library. And then you start assembling and then you're like, oh no, this works perfect. This section right there, let's try that. Oh, there you go. It's there. It worked where I didn't think it would. And I think that happens a lot too, where you kind of got to just leave yourself open and not quite sure how this is going to fit in, but like, let's, let's trust it. And a lot of times uh, you'll find it just will in a section. Fantastic. Well, uh, I, I can't wait to hear more of the show. Um, it's uh, it's it's out right now. Camp Hell, you can find it wherever podcasts are found. And um, I know I'll keep listening. I hope everyone else in the record store keeps listening too. Uh, but now, Scott, speaking of scores, I got to hear your mm. top five scores. Yes. So, uh, Josh, you go put your records away. Scott, you go gather up yours, and we'll uh, we'll finish this off. Okay, we are back. Uh, let's see here. I've gone. Josh is gone. Scott, it's your turn to give us your top five scores. Hit us with it. Okay. All right. So I, I um, 
and I, Seth, I know you know this, um, but I also, I'm a very seasonal music listener. Yeah. You know, there are some albums for me that, you know, let's say like Some Girls by the Rolling Stones. I can't listen to that in the dead of winter. I can try. <laughs> I get like two minutes in. I'm like, this just sounds wrong. I need to, mm-hmm. I need to listen to this in the sunshine and, and, and in the summer. And um, there are certain things that I, you know, there are certain books that I read at a certain time every year. Um, there are certain albums that I listen to at a certain time every year, and that includes soundtracks. And um, this uh, 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 season just started for this soundtrack. In fact, I was riding my bike the other day, and I hit a little patch where both sides of the road, like, canopied by, by, by pine trees, and the sun was hitting through, and it had that, like, that smell of baked, like, tree trunk wood. And I immediately just went, oh, I know what soundtrack I've listened to, and the soundtrack is my number five, is the soundtrack to To Kill a Mockingbird by Elmer Bernstein. Mm. Classic. So there, I don't think anyone captured the sound of, like, um... Uh, innocence and loss of innocence in childhood better than Elmer Bernstein in this soundtrack. Um, and it is, you know, like I said before my uh, earlier, I, my rules are like it has to, it can't sit on its own apart from the film. And this one doesn't for me. Like I, I hear it and every time I hear it, I have to watch the movie. And so it's always this sort of sequence of events. And then I, you know, I, I listen to it kind of sporadically over the summer. And then once fall hits, I'm done with it. It's not, uh, <laughs> uh, it's not appropriate for fall. I'm sorry, Elmer. <laughs> no, um, but um, yeah, it's just—it's really sim—it's really symphonic. It's really beautiful. It hits all the right notes. Um, it tells the story of the film without actually showing you anything. Um, and uh, the guy did a great, great, great job. And uh, getting back to um, the sound of the 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 uh, fistful of dollars and a few dollars more, the dollars trilogy. I think if there's any other composer other than Ennio that did. Um, the sound of the Western, it was Elmer Bernstein with his theme for The Magnificent Seven. Mm, yep. And um, unfortunately, that score isn't readily available, and so I've never actually heard the whole thing. I'd like to, uh, huh. but for right now, it sits with To Kill a Mockingbird. Nice. That's, nice. that's my number five. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, my number four um, is Phantom Thread by Johnny Greenwood. Hey. Yes. So as much as I love There Will Be Blood, and I do love mm-hmm. that soundtrack dearly, um, and I loved his soundtrack for Inherent Vice, and I loved his soundtrack, loved his soundtrack for The Master, there was something about Phantom Thread, and it might be because I heard an interview with him before the soundtrack came out, where Paul Thomas Anderson said to Johnny Greenwood, like, I want you to write the most romantic score you can write. Right. And... So before I heard it, I was like, oh, man, like, what's he going to do? Is it going to be like, I couldn't imagine what that would sound like because I'd only known the Johnny Greenwood up until that point, which was, you know, we had an embarrassment of riches. There was enough Johnny Greenwood there to cobble together an idea. But what he released, I could have never thought of. And not that I would presume to like Johnny Greenwood, he's a genius. But this soundtrack is so... Again, it's dry and lush at the same time. And he also said he wanted to rec- uh, write a, a, a score that was the most British that he's ever written. Right. And I think he kind of accomplished that because there are little notes of like the Merchant Ivory films in there every once in a while. And yet 
maybe with the exception of Inherent Vice, but is true on There We Blood, The Master, and Phantom Thread, at least to me, is he can't help but somehow write a horror score. Right. <laughs> it, just, it always sort of sneaks in there. Yeah. And I love that about him. I love that there's something, he can get the strings so sinister, and maybe that is his love of Penderecki, um, but there's something really, really beautiful about that. And something, it also kind of reminds me of David Lynch um, just as a person, because Lynch has always sort of dealt in the realm of sort of the saccharine neighborhood and the, the, the sort of insidious underworld beneath it. And that's what his scores kind of do, especially with Phantom Thread, is on first listen, it's this really lush, really beautiful score. But as you keep listening to it, there are so many like hints of darkness throughout it. And mm-hmm. I just love it. He is just, he is, uh, he is a master. Yeah. He definitely brought the tension up in that. I remember that movie and, and just yeah. thinking, man, it, it, the stakes seem so high for this dressmaker right now. <laughs> <with the laughs> yeah. Soundtrack, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's, and that, and that is like, that's the beautiful thing, as we all know, that a score can do. This one didn't make my top five, but I do love it dearly is Alan Silvestri's score to Back to the Future. I got to, when I lived in LA, I got to see a cut of Back to the Future without the score. Oh, wow. And is it still a great movie? Yeah. Is it the same movie? Not by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that movie is incredibly low-key and boring without the score. Now, did they take out the Huey Lewis in the News as well? (laughs) No, they didn't take that out. (laughs) They just had, that's that's even more weird. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just silence. And then for some reason, Doc Brown's driveway is next to a Burger King. And he just, you know... (laughs) But we're not talking about Back to the Future right now. I've actually um, I've heard something very similar about someone who saw uh, Halloween, the original 70s Halloween mm. without the score. And the same thing. Oh, they were like, yeah, there's no way that movie would be the classic it is today without wow. that John Carpenter score. Mm. Like the John so, Carpenter score turns a standard slasher film into mm-hmm. this tension-filled nightmare classic, you know? Yeah. And so let's just take a pause real quick and just mention John Carpenter because he didn't make my list and he didn't make your guys' list, but I love him so dearly. And he's so important Mm -hmm. to me. Um, It's actually amazing. Like I have a huge love for like 80s synth pop scores, like whether it's Brad Fidel's uh, Terminator score or the work of Vangelis or Giorgio Moroder. Like I love those scores dearly. So much so that I even like, even, of course they're great scores, but uh, Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein's scores for the Stranger Things soundtrack are amazing. And I love them. But it, you know, without John Carpenter, I don't know if we would have that sound. And um, the reason he's on my list is I couldn't pick one because mm-hmm. as much as I love Halloween, Halloween is almost like the song Something by the Beatles. I heard it so much <laughs> right. that it's like, do I even, can I even listen to this as music? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if I can. And my second favorite score of his is Christine. But unfortunately, it didn't stick with my rule. There's some filler on that soundtrack. Good filler. But filler nonetheless, because the the main themes of that movie are amazing. So, mm-hmm. John Carpenter, we salute you. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, my number three uh, is Gattaca by Michael Nyman. Wow, uh-huh. Gattaca. Out of left field with that one. It's one of my very favorite <laughs> scores of all time. And fine kind of film, like, fine score. I've never thought about the score separate from the film, which which I guess ties into your rule, what you're saying. Yeah, it yeah. ties so well with that movie. Right. And again, I think if you watch that movie without the score, it would seem kind of boring. Right. But that score is so heartbreaking and so beautiful 
that it elevates that movie to something much more special than I think it really is. It's already a great script and it's a great story and it's a great concept for a movie. And, you know, who doesn't love Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman and Jude Law and Alan Arkin? I can keep going. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Lauren Dean. So, um, but there's something about this score that it just, it does what I think the best music can do is it just, it evokes like tears. Like when you hear the score, you're just, you're put there and it, it makes this movie so much bigger than it is. Um, and I just love it to death. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't see that one coming. Good one. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so my number two, another one out of left field is uh, the score for Blood for Dracula by Claudio Gizzi. And this Another was an Andy, Dracula. yeah, like an Andy Warhol. Yeah, <laughs> so many Draculas. Uh, this is, uh, Andy Warhol produced a slate of monster movies for some reason back in the 70s huh. uh, with like Joe D'Alessandro. Um, one was Flesh for Frankenstein, uh, which is a fine movie. And one is Blood for Dracula. And I first saw it, um, my dad, when I was probably like six or seven years old, my dad knew that I liked horror movies and he stopped by the video store on the way home and he brought this thing and it was just called Andy Warhol's Dracula. They had retitled it for some reason. And I was like, oh, awesome. I love Dracula. And so I put on the movie and thank God my parents weren't in the room when I was watching it <laughs> because it is festooned with boobies and peenies <laughs> everywhere. They're just, it's just, it's just a, it's just an orgy on screen. And, um, but when I was first watching it, the opening, for those that have seen the movie, um, and it's out on Criterion, uh, if you want to get a hold of it, but um, it's Udo Kier, arguably probably one of the most beautiful humans to ever exist, sitting in front of the mirror, and uh, Claudio Gizzi's score comes in, and it's so delicate, and it's so beautiful, and uh, it paired with this image that I never really thought of, that Dracula is ancient, and so he's pale, his hair is white, um, he doesn't look necessarily human. He looks more like a mannequin. And so he's painting like with black grease paint, his hair black, and he's putting like rouge on his face just to appear alive. And uh, there's something about like, if that score wasn't in this movie, it would look like a bad attempt at like a hammer horror movie. But because again, this score elevates the movie to something way better than it really is so much so that Criterion put it out. Um, and uh, it reminds me a lot of... Um, for those that know this movie, there's a movie called King of Hearts um, that Georges Delarue did the soundtrack to. Um, and there's a track on there called uh, Los Repos, which is amazing. And it's a very similar feel. And um, for those that want a kind of a very delicate uh, piano driven with uh, delicate strings score, listen to Blood for Dracula. Nice. Man, we, the second time Andy Warhol's films have shown up in our list. One, one, That's one true. by oh, Kim wow. Gordon and now this, yeah. That's true. <laughs> Wowee. No, no, I, I've, I've already forgotten your number five. What was your number five again? Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. That's right. That's right. Okay, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and then my number one score, this was a fight um, by the same artist and probably the most um, uh, mainstream of all my picks, but... If there was a reason that I ever started composing, it was because of this guy. It's Danny Elfman's score to Edward Scissorhands. Yes. 
this was a th- that was a hard one for me to not <laughs> include as well. Yeah, Ditto. that, that, I mean, that was definitely on my short list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You and know, which Danny the, Elfman to pick? You know, well, and that that's, was the that's, one that I was settling on was uh, a scissor ant. Mm-hmm. So when I was a when I was a kid, this is back in '89 or '90, probably when the VHS came out. My dad returned from a, it's always my dad. My dad returned <laughs> from a trip, a business trip, and he brought back sealed a brand new copy of Batman on VHS. And um, I'd only ever seen it in theaters. And my friend Jeff was over and we put the tape in. And for those that have seen Batman 89, the Tim Burton Batman, the march happens as you're crawling through like a stone version of the bat symbol. And when it ends, I was like, can we can we rewind that and watch it again? And my friend was like, all right, I guess. <laughs> and so we did it again. I did it five times to the point where I made him cry and he went up home uh, to upstairs and called his mom to come pick him up. <laughs> and um, when I had to explain to my mom and his mom why Jeff was crying, I I, it, I felt so stupid all of a sudden. I was like, well, I wanted to, I wanted to listen to the music. And I just felt all of a sudden very uh, exposed because both the, my mom and his mom looked at me like, just watch the movie. Like, why right. you, like you, right. like you can watch, you can listen to it anytime. And so I loved that soundtrack. And then eventually when, Edward Scissorhands came out. I fell in love with that score. It was it was basically like, you know, uh, Batman was the springboard and Edward Scissorhands was like the dunk. And uh, because there are parts of the Batman soundtrack, which are fine, little fillery, but fine. The Edward Scissorhands score from front to back, I think, is Danny Elfman at his very, very best. Mm-hmm. And it's an unorthodox score. Uh, Edward has two or even two and a half themes where, you know, most characters either get a light theme or a dark theme or just one theme in general. Um, It's a very repetitive score, which means that it's not a whole lot of filler because he basically made four themes and just played on those for the whole movie. And um, it's obviously, you know, we've seen it's, it's one of the most copied scores, um, uh, you know, like I remember Walgreens like got like there's like a lawsuit because they like copied bits and pieces of it. Huh. And it's uh, such an iconic sound and such a simple sound that Danny Elfman himself went to Richard Kraft, his agent, and said, I need you to look through all your albums and I'll look through all of mine and I'm calling other friends. They need to look through all theirs because I'm sure I didn't write this. He's like, this had to have been written by someone else. It's too simple. It's too melodic. This had to have been written, been written by someone else. So they spent months pouring through album after album after album. And it turned out that, at least as far as they knew, no one had written that. It just it just seemed like a score that had, you know, if it hadn't been written, as anyone else, someone would write it. And it just right. turned out to be him. And um, it's so, I, what is the word? Echoic? Echoic. Echoic. I don't even know how yeah. it's spelled. Echoic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, this conversation is getting pleonastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, I love that score very, very dearly, and um, I, uh, I, I, it's you know, soundtracks, film soundtracks, especially film scores, they tend to go in, you know, certain things go in and out of style. Um, you know, from the the '60s probably through the '80s and into the mid '90s, melody was king. You know, people wanted to not only, you know, companies not only wanted to sell the soundtrack, but composers, you know, and modern composers had learned from not only the the greats that preceded film, like the classical composers, but the the, the composers of early film, people like, you know, uh, Bernard Herrmann and uh, Jerry Goldsmith and um, even like Carl Stalling, who worked with the, the Warner Brothers cartoons. And they worked so much in melody. So this is where we get people like, you know, uh, uh, John Williams and Danny Elfman. And somewhere along the line, 
it became kind of uncool to have melody. And so then it went more sort of atmospheric. And um, I think we're starting uh, to see... It's like that joke in... um Forgetting Sarah Marshall, oh, where you see you see Jason Siegel and he's like scoring for some sort of CSI Law and Order SVU type show, yeah. and they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, you're doing great and everything." And he's like, "I just make tones, ominous tones." It's <laughs> so true. So many times we're looking for podcast soundtracks and like, yeah, I need more drones. Where's how many drones? Yeah. Can we have slightly yeah. different drones? Already five times. How, yeah. how long can this drone go on before it's boring? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but we're starting to see a return to melody with you know composers like Michael Giacchino and stuff like that. So I'm 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 happy to see that that now it's being sort of equally represented. So you know even someone like Mika Levi with her scores to Under the Skin or Jackie um, is is really doing beautiful work in the the realm of melody. Yeah, so I agree. That's it, my number one. That really it, seems like the most one of the most emotional Danny Elfman works too. I mean, oh, he's yeah, such absolutely. a quirky thing. But I just remember being a kid and talking about like crying during a movie. That was a serious emotional thing yeah. for me, being a young kid watching Edward Scissorhands. Uh, and yeah, I mean, for Danny Elfman, such a you know quirky composer. I had to keep using that word, but you know, he has very very specific style you know immediately when you hear it and that one yeah. did seem to convey so much more like raw emotion than than a lot of his you know pv yeah. or even nightmare before christmas or whatever yeah i remember i was really you know i i you know danny elfman probably one of my favorite composers i do fall off with him at a certain point um charlie and the chocolate factory but um <laughs> everything before that i absolutely adore and i was lucky enough to see him um, in Lincoln Center, and he was up there with the with the the full uh, New York Philharmonic. Oh man, wow! And it was the films of Danny Elfman and Tim Burton, and they went through each one uh, up until I think up until like maybe like Planet of the Apes, maybe Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I don't think they did anything past that. Um, but I was there with my girlfriend at the time, and she had several points, and especially during the Edward Scissorhands moments, she had to be like, "Look," she's like, "Are you okay?" Because I was like. Herking. <laughs> and herking isn't even a word. I was herking with like tears. Yeah. Um, because I was like, this is, this is, if I ever picked up an instrument, this guy is one of the reasons why. Right. And um, it was absolutely stunning. And then, you know, to, to uh, uh, just add on to it, he came out with uh, Catherine O'Hara and Paul Rubens and they did uh, uh, Kidnap Mr. Santa Claus. Uh, <laughs> and he sang, wow. uh, and he sang Oogie Boogie song too. And obviously he sang uh, like Jack's Lament because he is the voice of Jack. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it was pretty incredible. And then wow. he did Dead Man's Party by Oingo Boingo. Nice. And I was of like, course. what the hell? What? Am I going to die tonight? Is this, <laughs> right. Are they just giving me everything that I ever wanted? Was this around the same time when he was headlining Coachella? Was that like kind of. Uh... I think it was a little bit before that, but I think mm. it was those moments that he did at Lincoln Center and the Hollywood Bowl that. Gave him, you know, pushed him to do Coachella. Sure, right. Yeah. Did uh, have you guys seen the the single the music video you've released? Yeah. Sometime during COVID in 2020, I believe. He, yeah. He's yeah. leaning into his weirdness. And I'm, I'm here for it. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's great yeah. though. Uh, yeah. What was the name of that song? I can't oh, remember. Like, I want to say like well, Mister Animal he's or something. Over and over again. Yeah. He's releasing one song a month. Oh. Um, and then he's got an album coming out uh, pretty soon, and it's like eighteen songs. And like, but yeah, he's releasing one song and and the accompanying video per month. So oh, so there's go more. Out and, oh man, yeah, go oh, have I fun. I need to go check him. He, it was, yeah. This was the first one of those, I believe, though. And I just remember, being, yeah, this guy's still still coming out with new creative stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. always. 
I love it. Well, and speaking of uh, Danny Elfman, uh, let's talk about some albums that didn't quite make our top fives, but we wish they would have. Because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Edward Scissorhands was definitely on my list. So was mm-hmm. Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I there's about it. so <laughs> many great moments on there. Like mm-hmm. like The Breakfast Machine. Oh, yes. that's, uh, yeah. that's classic. classic. And the first yeah. uh, Tim Burton, Danny Elfman. Uh, yeah. Collab. Yeah. 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 Um, also, you mentioned uh, Jackie by Mika Levi. Love that one still haven't seen the movie but i love that soundtrack (laughs) nice um oh music from the film hell house by matt and bubba kadane really love that one Mm, yeah Um, i heart huckabees by john bryan love that one um let's see suspiria the tom york score that one's really that was also on my list too and, and the that, original Suspiria, Goblin. Goblin. Very good, yes. Yeah. Uh, but that's enough out of me. How about you two? Anything uh, you really wanted to squeeze in but couldn't? Uh, the one that I wish I could have added, and this almost made it, was The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford by Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an amazing, amazing score. Um, and then a few others. Uh, Hellraiser by Christopher Young. Amazing. That movie does not deserve that score. And I love that movie. <laughs> um, I love that movie, but it does not deserve that score. Christine by John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Heart Huckabees. And Eternal Sunshine and Punch Drunk Love. Just all the John Bryan stuff is right. really great. And then Suspiria by uh, uh, Tom York, which... I, you know, I always thought like, oh, come on, Tom, this is Johnny's game. And then Tom yeah. made a yeah. brilliant score. And I was yeah. like, oh, fuck you both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Talented. Both too good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So many horror movies, really. Like, uh, yeah. you know, the spirit, uh, the, the Tommy Rock one was amazing. The original one by Goblin, 60s mm-hmm. psych horror movie. And uh, The Shining, uh, Wendy Carlos, again. Yeah. yeah. And that's a tough one. That one to find on vinyl. I think mm-hmm. I've seen one and it was on sale for like, or four hundred dollars, right? Something right. with some label rights or something along those lines, and uh, right. really hard to find that one if you do. Um, yeah, there, there's just a lot of horror that I, I didn't include any, and I felt bad about that because there's really that's one of the strongest scoring genres out there. Yeah, you know. Um, oh yeah, like a really great new one is uh, Colin Stetson's score for um, Hereditary. Yeah. You know, <laughs> That, that one's one. powerful. Oh. That one that one got me for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, and again I know I mentioned him at the 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 top of the hour, but John Williams, you know, like yeah. it almost seems like too obvious to add him, but right. we would not have the childhood we had without mm-hmm. some of his themes. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, come on, it's like she's the best. Mhm. All right. Well, one thing we got to do before we leave, um, I got to restock the employee recommendation shelf. Now, Tara's not here, so I'm going to ask both of you to put something up there in her stead, okay? Uh, My pick, it's an album I've really been enjoying lately, uh, just came out this year, 2021. It's called Makishti, which I'll spell because uh, it's a word I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce it. M-A-Q-U-I-S-H-T-I. And this is an album by Patricia Brennan. So um, she's an avant-garde marimbist and vibraphonist. Uh, She was born in Mexico, but now she's a New Yorker. And um, she does all kinds of things, compositions, um, you know, group work, orchestral work, blah, blah, blah. But this is primarily... Uh, improvised solo marimba and vibraphone stuff. And nice. um, the other day I had to walk down to the to the uh, post office. And it was a nice sunny spring day, walking down the street, listening to this. And it was just one of those like perfect moments where it's just like, ah, 
perfect environment, perfect like, you know, feeling and mood and mm. perfect mu- like music to score it. Like this this really felt like it was mm-hmm. scoring my walk to the post office. <laughs> and um it was wonderful. It was just it was just one of those perfect moments and it was all thanks to uh, Patricia Brennan and her album Makishti. Mac Yeah, I'll call I'll say it Makishti. That's how I'll pronounce Marimba's it. Marimba's so great. Oh, mm-hmm. it sounds so it's good. It's just and, one of those instruments that uh can just fit in so many things and just mm-hmm. nothing like it. And she's very experimental with her marimba. Uh, quite often, it just sounds like a straight marimba, but she also like runs it through like guitar pedals and stuff. Oh, neat! And does like nice. some really fun things, and like the improvised noises that mm. she makes with hmm. those pedals then like become part of the composition. And uh, any vibraphone or straight like marimba itself? I know those are kind of interchangeable. She does Sometimes both in people's months. Yeah, she does both. Yes, mm. yeah. She, she, yeah I, when, when, when you want to get jazzy, you pull out the vibes. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. But yeah, that's mine. Uh, check her out, Patricia Brennan. Uh, nice. How about either you, Josh? Uh, uh, something you want to throw on the wall? Yeah, something I feel so bad about. I'm, I'm going to chalk this up to COVID. Uh, a favorite artist of mine, uh, Blake Mills, uh, also producer, just loving people again in the Studio Wizard game. Um, and he came out with a new album either 2020 or 2019, but it feels like it almost got lost to COVID and lockdown, but uh, called um, uh, Mutable Set by Blake Mills. And I'll be honest, I put it on one night, it was late, I'd like been listening to all my Blake Mills albums and watching videos of them on YouTube, and I was like, you know, he put out an album of complete ambient music. And I was like, okay, this is cool, but I really love his songwriting. But, you know, okay, it's finally time. I'm going to go listen to the ambient album. So I put on the newest album by Blake Mills, and it's comes in with this very atmospheric sound. Like, okay, this is cool. And then all of a sudden, I start hearing uh, nylon string guitar, and he starts singing. And I'm like, wait, what is this? <laughs> what kind he of came out with a whole this? other album <laughs> that I, I didn't realize, and I was listening to that. Oh, wow. And, and it's amazing. Um, it really feels like kind of he found a middle ground between the ambient guitar stuff that he can do and um and his incredible songwriting of his first couple albums and Blake Mills if you don't know him he's an amazing guitarist definitely like a guitar prodigy that you wouldn't know based on listening to him because he's not very showy uh, but he's produced lots of stuff for Alabama Shakes and uh played with people like Fiona Apple and Booker T uh Jones before and and a lot of people and Yeah, he was a regular staple at uh, Largo in LA for a while. Yes, yeah, he he's one of those I think he just kind of flies under the radar. I think he you might get to see him at a surf shop out in Santa Cruz and Jackson Brown might be hanging out or something like that. Right. Another know. person that goes to Largo all the time. Yeah. Oh, really? God, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to go to that club sometime then uh Oh, it's the best, man. Yeah. Yeah, I'd really love to. Um so yeah, Blake Mills Mutable Set, it's incredible. I've been listening to it a lot, in particular the track Mutable Twin on there. And I will also have have a have a second footnote for my uh uh album to refer people to, and that's my own album, the Migrant Worker album that we yeah. just put out. Nice. We released at the beginning of twenty twenty and um started out great. And then we kind of have been a little stagnant since then. But we're starting to get back <laughs> out there now. Yeah, who, who knows? What happened to live music? So we're getting back out there. We're playing actually a festival at the end of the month, uh, Forward Fest up in Lafayette, Georgia at Cherokee Farms. And um, our album is out. You can find it on Spotify or iTunes or 
It will be on Bandcamp soon, but it is not. And if you want to find us on Facebook, and if you'd like to get a copy to check it out, send us a DM and we'll get it to you. Very nice. Uh, nice I, I can fully endorse that album. And um, I remember I was at your album release party. What, when was that? Do you remember the date? So that was February 4th or something. It was around my birthday, I remember, but it was toward the beginning of 2020, end of J- January, beginning of February, somewhere in there. It was one of the last shows I ever went to. <laughs> you oh, know? cool. Nice. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I, th- I think there was a, a couple of more that happened during that month of February. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely within like the last, I don't know, four or five shows I went to before mm-hmm. uh, all shows were canceled for a couple of years. Yeah. So. Yeah. Cause yeah. I remember we, we did that album release and then we had the good fortune to open for Marty Stewart at variety playhouse. Wow. And that was like February. That was like Thursday, February, like 12th or something like that. And then well, I had to go there. out of town to Virginia to go pick up a bunch of documents for the podcast. Mm-hmm. And we, it was like this, should we fly out or not with, and then lockdown started that Monday we got back. So luckily we did and got what we needed to. And then that was the start of lockdown. It's crazy, like, everybody has a story about that. Like, I, yeah. the last yeah. show I saw was Wolf Parade at Brooklyn Steel, and the very next show, they canceled right. because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, got it right under the wire. Right, mm-hmm. right. Crazy. Uh, Scott, how about you? What do you want to pop up on the employee recommendation shelf? So I'm always a big fan of people who are curators um, because it seems to me that, you know, they do a really good job of diving into the bins. So the rest of us not necessarily don't have to because that's a very good thing to do, but you know, there's so much music out there, including new music, that a lot of the time, you know, we can only give ourselves so much time to go deep diving. And so when there are companies devoted to it, uh, it's appreciated. And one of them is, I think, one of the best is the Numero Group. Mm. Um, And uh, they released a compilation called Basement Beehive, the Girl Group Underground. back in 2018 and it's just it's amazing it, it's all bands that i've never heard of that were around in the 60s um and uh i kind of every time i listen to it, like oh i want to go find all their records and these bands didn't have all their records the, right the, the bands had like maybe a single maybe two hmm. and um you know we're lucky enough to hear them on these collections but numero group has got a million great collections go check them out um, you can buy them on um, many of them on vinyl. They make a whole bunch more that they just throw up on Spotify and Apple Music. So check them out; they're amazing. I love companies that do that. Like the curators. Yeah. There's a lot of good ones out there right now. For sure, totally. and especially in a world where uh, LPs never happened. Like, um, mm-hmm. I'm definitely a big person who believes in the album. Like, I want to listen to the album from beginning to end, et cetera, et cetera. But then that means I actually miss out on a lot of music because there are huge groups for many reasons, never released albums. Mm-hmm. And uh, these compilations, I think, really help that. Uh, Scott, are these um, artists similar to, like, the Tammies, that kind of vibe? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm seeing and- on their website some Tammy labels right now, actually. Nice. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, they're great, man. Like, they got a really good, like, spooky playlist for uh, Halloween time. Uh, all of stuff that, nice. like, you've never heard of before. You know, maybe they'll throw on, like, Boris Pickett's Monster Mash just because they're like, <laughs> you know you want that, too. But <laughs> there's, like, 80 other songs that I've never heard, and they're, they're, it's, it's all amazing stuff. Coal Mine's been another company that's been putting out some of that. More along the yeah. folk soul stuff. But I remember but, yeah. my, my buddy Tom from Ohio, and I think they're out of there. He turned me on to them like a few years ago. And now I'm seeing all the coal mine 
uh, like compilations just skyrocketing in secondhand pricing for the vinyl. Oh, really? It's really popping off. Yeah. Man. So people get word and then, <laughs> that's, then you can't get them. So that's yeah. what happens. <laughs> Well, excellent. Uh, big thank you to everyone here in the record store today, especially you, Josh. Thanks for playing the game with us. Thank you. Uh, Scott, uh, thank you for uh, neglecting the rest of your mail route and just hanging out here in the record store until far <laughs> too <know>. late. <laughs> the mail will get there. You're my only stop on my route. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not convinced you're an actual mail carrier, but you no, know, I just, whatever. <laughs> I, I keep shirking off my work, and so they basically just gave me this one spot. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, well, thanks again, everybody. But uh, the store is officially closed. So happy trails, everyone. Until we meet again. Record Store Society is hosted by Tara Davies and Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to contact the show, you can send an email to recordstoresociety at iheartmedia.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society. Record Store Society is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The Times, a daily news podcast from the Los Angeles Times, gives you the world through the eyes of the West Coast. New episodes of The Times are available every weekday. To find it, go wherever you get your podcasts and search for The Times, daily news from the LA Times.